fun if you're not used to looking at a Bible, the few Bibles provided. Uh, really, we're going to be Exodus 1.22. Uh, that's the very last verse of chapter 1. We uh, are excited to see all of you here this morning. I said that after our homecoming service, about half our church got churched out. We've not been back since. Um, I would yell and stomp my feet about it, except you all are here, so it's not going to do any good. <laughs> it is uh, good to be here. Glad to hear things are going well in all of our Sunday school classes, for the Moon Sunday school class, and for the Dons. I started one, uh, a uh, Bible basics class that we started this morning. Very excited about that back here. Um, about not uh, just 13 weeks on things every Christian ought to know. And uh, how to live the Christian life, how to pray, how to study the Bible for yourself, how to resist temptation, things like that. We'll do it for 13 weeks, and at the end of this quarter, people can go back to their regular classes or whatever. Um, the Well, on February 4th, CNN ran a story uh, that some of you may have seen on the news. I'm going to read a selection from it. A young mother who died in a house fire is being called a hero because she managed to save her newborn daughter's life, authorities said Friday. Shelby Carter, 21, apparently strapped her baby into a car seat, broke a second floor window, and dropped the child to the ground below, said the chief of the volunteer fire department in Wyoming, Illinois. When firefighters arrived, they moved a pile of discarded carpet on the ground so that they could climb a ladder to the second floor window. That caused a car seat to roll toward the house. They looked in inside the car seat and found Kiana Davis. Firefighters rushed the baby to a nearby hospital. She was released and is now being cared for by relatives. Well, you know, imagine uh, being in Shelby Carter's shoes. You are stuck, trapped in a second story window. You are choking on the smoke and you've got your baby there with you. And you've got Basically, no options. You leave your baby in there with you, or do you throw your baby out the window? And she straps her baby in the car seat, drops her baby out the window, and saves her baby's life. Although she died of smoke inhalation. Firefighters said they didn't know why she didn't jump out of the window also. Imagine being in a hopeless situation like that. This is, of course, the position of every Hebrew mother 1,600 years ago when, when Pharaoh has decided to kill every Hebrew baby boy. We read last week that he told all the midwives to kill all of the baby boys the moment they were born. The midwives would not comply. But then in chapter 1, verse 22, we read, And Pharaoh charged all his people saying, every son that is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. He said, I've given up on the partial birth abortion strategy. We're no longer going to try to catch the kids before they are completely born. Instead, when a baby is born, you are going to throw it into the Nile River to drown, be consumed by the crocodiles. Oh, you imagine then that you are a Hebrew woman, this happened 3,600 years ago, 1600 B.C. Can you imagine you're a Hebrew woman and you're pregnant? The Egyptians worshipped the Nile River as the god that brought them life, and the god that brought them life they decided ought to be the death. It ought to be a watery grave for every Hebrew boy. 
not just the responsibility of the midwives, but he said he told all of his people. Every Egyptian was given the job. See something, say something. If you find out there's a Hebrew baby boy alive, it is your responsibility as a citizen of the empire to take that baby and throw it into the river. Now you're the mother or father of a Jewish baby boy. Imagine your fear, you know. We uh, are worried about colic, you know, like a cold. But you're not worried about colic because you don't want to get to sleep. You're worried about your baby crying because it will expose you to the Egyptians around. So what do you do? Do you hand your baby over? And let your baby be drowned by your oppressors? But what if you hold on to your baby... And then you're caught, and the Egyptians decide to punish your whole family for what you did. And so now all of your children die. What do you do in a situation like that? Maybe they don't punish your family, but we already saw Pharaoh decided to work these harder and harder and harder. Maybe some of your friends die of heat stroke because they don't get any breaks because they found out you hit your baby. In a no-win situation, it's a hopeless situation. What do you do in a no-win situation? You know, we know that no-win situations are not unique, right? You hear about uh, somebody who is pregnant, and they find out that if they give birth to the baby, then the mother and the baby might die, or maybe not. Um, one one thing I encountered from time to time. You've got somebody who's a Christian. They know that uh, sex outside of marriage is a sin, but they say, how am I going to make the bills if I've got to get by on a single income? You know, can I let my kids starve? Will it be my conscience or my family? Will I do what God says is right, or will I do what's going to make things work now? You have to file your taxes. Some of you were thinking about that. Some of you have already done it. Some of you are going to be thinking about it soon. Some of you are going to be thinking about it on April 15th. But it comes time to file your taxes and you start adding it up and you realize that your employer underwithheld and you don't have enough money. And you say, well, my credit cards are already maxed out, but some of the money that I got paid was in cash. So if I lie about my taxes, then I can make this work out. You know, I can make this work out. What is your integrity worth when your rent's due and your refrigerator's paid? What do you do in a no-win situation? You've got somebody, let's say, that has a problem with abusing drugs. They can go get the help that they need, but doing so, they would have to tell their boss they were going to be, they needed to be off. They'd have to confess to it. And maybe it would work out, and maybe it wouldn't. How do you balance the long-term with the here and now. Your best friend is on their way to an eternity apart from Jesus, but you're afraid if you talk to them that you will alienate them completely. How do you balance two bad choices? What do you do when there are no good options? So in 1526 B.C., every Hebrew mother was in a no-win situation. And we don't know what most of them did. We don't know how long this lasted. Uh, This pharaoh was probably pharaoh for about 15 more years. When he first came into power, he went on this rampage. 
to eliminate any potential enemies. And then, like people do, he settled down. But that didn't bring back the babies who had already drowned. So we don't know what everybody did. But what we do know is what one family did. What one family did story is recorded here in Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And I think that this today is going to give us some insight into what do we do in a no-win situation. Exodus chapter 2, verse 1. And there went a man out of the house of Levi and took to wife a daughter of Levi. And the woman conceived and bare a son. And when she saw him that he was a goodly child, she hid him three months. We don't know the names of uh, his parents yet. That'll come out later in chapter 6. But what we do know is that we've got two people, both members of a small Hebrew tribe, the Levites. They get married and they have a baby. But unlike when you get married and have a baby, this is not a happy story for them. Because the baby that they have is a baby boy. It's kind of interesting. It says, when they saw the child, they saw that he was a goodly child. Said, what in the world does that mean? He was a good child. He's a baby. In Genesis chapter 1, after every day, it says, God made the light and he saw that it was good. God made this and he saw that it was good. God made man and he said, it is very good. You know, the, I was telling my Sunday school class this morning that the Bible is broken into four acts creation, God makes the world, makes it perfect wants us to have a relationship with him. Fall. Our sin destroys the perfect world that God made us. Redemption. God becomes a man and comes back to rescue his broken world. And then restoration. Someday Jesus comes again and restores all things to himself. When the world was created, God said it was very good. When sin came, the world was no longer very good. And do you know what you and I have been looking for ever since? We've been looking for someone to look at us and say, you know, you are very good. You are good. How many things have you done in your life that were dumb decisions or ill-timed decisions or whatever because you were looking for somebody's approval? You were looking for somebody to tell you, you know what, you're good. There are people that you shouldn't have anything to do with, but because they will approve you, you just jump on board with whatever they want. Say, you are good. Ever since we lost the very good of God, we've been looking for approval somewhere else. So you find it, you know, you're, you get so excited when your boss or a teacher or your parent or your spouse or whatever says something positive to you. But I'm going to tell you something that is a big secret. You know, don't let this out of this room. I don't know if everybody else can handle it. The satisfaction you get from that does not last. Your spouse says, you know, you are so good. I'm so proud of you. And then two weeks later, say, how come you never say anything nice to me? You you go and you say, you know, I just can't stand work. My boss never gives me any kind of positive affirmation or anything. Your boss says, well, I put, you know, I, I gave you an acceptable on your evaluation last year. What are you talking about? I gave you affirmation. We find out very quickly that affirmation from people is a sugar rush. It's good for a second, and then it's gone, and the crash is worse than when you started. 
See, we get so dependent on people calling us good that we miss out on the one thing that matters. You want so badly for somebody to say to you, you're good, I'm proud that you're mine, that you forget about God. And we look for satisfaction with everybody else. And yet, when we bring this idea of Moses being a good child. That's the same Hebrew word. Very good. (coughs) It is used pretty rarely in the Bible. And when you combine it with the fact that Moses is about to be put in an ark, and the fact that in chapter 1 it talked about the nation of Israel swarming and being fruitful and multiplying, you immediately see that what God is doing here in the book of Exodus is bringing forth a new creation. He made the world before, and now he is making the nation of Israel from the descendants of Abraham. He's creatively acting. And so when Moses' mother looks at this baby boy, she says, he is a good child. God has declared him very good. God is doing something with him. If you want to know what to do in a hopeless situation, you want to know how to live with faith in a no-win scenario, the first thing you need to do is you need to figure out what is God doing. You need to see what is God doing. Everybody is probably familiar with Mr. Rogers. He was actually an ordained Presbyterian minister. Uh, He was a, uh, but he said that he was watching uh, TV one day, and he was just like heartbroken over the fact that this uh, destructive stuff was being beamed into people's television sets, into their homes. And so he said, I'm going to use it to do something good. And so he, he created his TV show, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. In Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, I read a little biography of him, and every day when he went into the TV studio, he would stop to pray. Um, Mr. Rogers really would make you embarrassed if your Christian life you ever read a biography of him. He got up every morning, um, and he would, the first thing he did was he would go swimming for three miles, and while he was swimming, he was going in his prayer list through every person that he knew. He said he prayed for dozens of people by name every day for about an hour and a half. You're lucky to pray for an hour and a half this week. Mr. Rogers prayed every day. And then as he was going into the studio, he would never walk through the doors of his studio without stopping to pray, Lord, let some word that is heard today be yours. Really interesting. And he, uh, he talked about people that called him, said they were watching his show, and they wanted to know what it was that made him different. They talked about him leading people to Christ because of his children's TV show. <coughs> You know, even one story that stuck out to me was some, some lady that was strung out on drugs, laying on the couch, and couldn't change the channel. And so she ended up watching Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And then was just so, for reasons she couldn't understand, moved. And called him or wrote him a letter and contacted him and accepted Christ. All that to say, she he was told, you know, when he saw something scary, his mother told him to look for the help. So you see something happening, some crisis or whatever, and it scares you. Said, look, she said, look for the people that are out there doing good. Well, there's a storm, and you think, what if a storm came and blew my house away? Look for the people that are out there helping in the middle of the storm. There's a disease. Uh, interestingly, Christianity really took off during <coughs> the plague. So well, that's a strange time to take off. People were dying left and right. Pagans, non-Christians, were throwing their own family members out into the street to die. 
and Christian were risking their own life taking dying people into their homes, strangers. And so as the plague subsided, people said, who are these people that would do that? I wonder when the last time Christians did anything like that was. I wonder when the last time you did anything that was any personal risk at all was. See, we think that we are mature Christians because we know the books of the Bible. <clears throat> we know where to sit in church. We know this or that or the other. We give money. We work or whatever. We think we're mature Christians. Pat yourself on the back. Right? You can't get the very good of God, so you give yourself a very good. But ultimately, the Bible says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. When was the last time you did anything on the basis of faith? When was the last time you did something that didn't make sense, and you did it because you felt like that's what God wanted you to do? I bet that a lot of you can't remember. So you hear those stories that I mentioned in the instruction, and you say, well, yeah, it's obvious what you think we ought to do. But here's what I would really do in real life. I'd lie on my taxes, you know? Here's my question for you. What would you do if you had faith? <clears throat> First thing, as I said, you need to see what God is doing. She sees that God is accomplishing a new creation here. She sees that God is doing something good and new, and she wants to get in on what God is doing. If you're comfortable writing in the margin of your Bible next to Exodus chapter 2, I would write Hebrews 11.23. We read Hebrews 11.23 to you. It says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents, because they saw he was a proper child, and they were not afraid of the king's command. By faith... Moses' parents hid him for three months because they saw that when God was doing something good, their fear of the consequences went away. They trusted God more than they trusted the Pharaoh's word that he would kill them. What would that look like in your life? They had faith, so they didn't fear. They saw something special about this child, and they believed. They knew what God was doing. They knew he would not let his people perish in Egypt because he had made a promise to Abraham that they would go and dwell in the land of Israel. He knew this would not be the end. And so, again, to spoil the whole thing, the whole secret to living in impossible circumstances, is to ask yourself the simple question, what would I do if I believed God? If in every situation you say, you know what, I don't have as much faith as I probably ought to have. So let me just ask myself, what would I do if I did? What would someone who had faith do? So, if I trusted God, if I want to lie on my taxes, I want to do something wrong to make my own life easier... What if instead I trusted God to deal with the consequences of me obeying him? If I do something wrong, it's because I think my own ingenuity can protect me better than the God of the universe can. Sounds silly when you say it like that. I think that my sin is a better shield than the God who died on a cross and rose Every time you've done something and you knew it was wrong and you said, well, I just had to. I just was, I had no choice. 
It's because you trusted yourself more than you trusted God. You were confused about who God was. You know, obviously what God was doing here in the life of Moses was unique. We're in a different point of salvation history. He was bringing up a physical nation to rescue Jesus. But you know what God's business is today. We're not in the space between fall and redemption. We're in the space between redemption and restoration. What is God doing today? He is taking his gospel to the nations. He's changing people's hearts one at a time to establish beachheads of his kingdom in the midst of the darkness. So if you know that's what God's doing, and you say, what would I do if I believed that God was changing hearts one at a time? What would I do if I believed that the things that I said and the things that I do matter for people for eternity? What would I do? And you know exactly what you would do. So the question is, why not do it? Why not step out in faith and do it? I'm going to give you some different examples. You know, obviously, if you're a Christian, if you're, if you're not a Christian, and you know what God is doing is changing hearts, then what you would do if you had faith is you would step out and ask him to save you and forgive. Maybe people have believed you're a Christian for a long time, and so you don't want to do it because you'd be embarrassed or whatever. But what if you believed God, and you said, this is the thing that matters most? You know, what if you are a Christian, and you go to vote or deal with politics or deal with your job and whatever, and you believe that God is in control? You go to vote and you say, what is God doing with the government? Well, he's not changing people's hearts. He's temporarily restraining sin. If I believe God's master plan is not by mind, not by power, but by my spirit, then I'm going to make different kinds of decisions. I'm going to trust God in the midst of all kinds of things. You trust him enough to do the government, to do what he's going to do and let the government do what they're going to do. Do you trust him enough? That if you are at work and you are given a, an opportunity for a promotion, there will be more money, more prestige, whatever, and it's going to keep you out of church. You say, I'm going to do what God wants me to do instead of what's going to make my life easier. I understand, of course, there are some people who don't have any choice, right? There's a, I'm glad that there are police officers patrolling the streets today. I'm glad we've got fire. I'm glad we've got things like that. But sometimes you don't have to work that overtime, right? But you don't trust God. You say, I need that extra money. I need this. I need that. I get so sleepy on Wednesday nights. I don't know. Maybe that's less of a trust issue. What would you do if you trusted God? I do want to say, we don't need to tempt God. Right? Satan took Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple. And he said, if you're the son of God, cast yourself down. And Jesus said, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. You don't need to go out and, you know, Amram and Jochebed did not take Moses and hold him up and say, look over here, I trust God. <laughs> you, know, you don't need to go out on a limb. You cannot claim a promise God's not made, right? Sometimes if you pray and you say, Lord, I'm just trusting you for my Cadillac. <laughs> you can't trust God for something that he didn't say he's going to do. You can't put God in a corner. <laughs> but if you trust what God is doing, you see what God is doing. And you get your life lined up with that. It'll change things. It'll give you hope in hopeless circumstances. Verse 3. 
And when she could no longer hide him, she took for him an ark of bulrushes and dabbed it with slime and with pitch and put the child therein, and she laid it in the flags by the river's brink. And the sister stood far off to wit what would be done to her. <coughs> she can't hide him forever. Get to be about three months old, and they start to make noise. I don't know if any of you noticed there was a four-month-old in here just a minute ago, making a little bit of noise, okay? You can't hide a baby forever. So she hides him for as long as she can. And at the end, when she can't hide him anymore, she follows Pharaoh's instructions. Kind of. She throws him in the river. But before she throws him in the river, she builds an ark. Now, ark in Hebrew means exactly the same thing to them as it, meant, as it means to you in English. It was the thing that Noah built that allowed him to withstand the flood. And so, Jochebed, hundreds of years later, says, I believe God is just as much in control now as he was then. And I believe the God who can rescue humanity on a boat can rescue my baby in a little box. <laughs> and so she took papyrus and she took tar and she made a watertight box. And she laid him in the reeds. She doesn't test God. You know, she doesn't say, well, here's where the crocodiles are. She puts him in the reeds to get stuck. And she puts him in a very specific location. We're going to see that. But this is a lot less dramatic than a giant ark. What a strange way to save the world is a baby in a wicker basket. But it is, of course, no stranger than a baby in a manger or a God on a cross. So imagine the agony of Moses' parents that have walked away. You know, they can't stay and watch. You imagine their heartbreak as they turn their back and they can't see their baby anymore. I don't know how the rest of you are, but uh, sometimes, you know, Colleen, at least, uh, gets up at night, at the night and goes and leans over by the bassinet to make sure Anna's still breathing. Watch your little chest go up and down. And yesterday, uh, Colleen, Courtney, and Tara took our uh, girls up to a girls' conference up in uh, Houston. And um, she left the baby here. And so she was gone from, I don't know, 8 o'clock until 3 o'clock, or maybe later than that, they got stuck in rodeo traffic all the way back. And would you believe that when she got back, nobody else held that baby? Because she knew the baby was fine, right? But she couldn't see the baby. Can you imagine leaving your baby in a box in the river? So our first step to living by faith is to see what God is doing. The second step, and this is just as important, is to not see what God is doing. Faith is a funny thing. If you're a plant in something, you're playing a tomato plant, Maybe you're sick and tired of playing store-bought tomatoes and you decide you're going to plant your own tomatoes. If I go out and I plant some tomatoes and I come back the next day and there's no sprout, so I dig it up to look at it to make sure the seed's okay and then I plant it again. And I repeat over and over again. What am I going to do to my fledgling tomato plant? I'm going to kill it. If I say, God, I have faith. Look at me. I'm very... I'm very good. God, I have faith. 
But God, let me see exactly what's going to go on and when it's going to happen. You know, you can't expect me to get out of my comfort zone until I can see for sure that it's going to work out. You know, I'll stick my toe in, but don't expect any big jumps. Faith doesn't work like that, right? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. You have to not be able to see it to really trust it. You know, if we, again, think about some difficult scenarios, if you decide to tell the truth on your taxes today, you will not know how those finances are going to work out today. By the time that you find out if God's going to make it work out or not, it's too late. By the time you turn down that promotion so that you can do what God wants you to do, and you find out if God has something better or not, it is too late. By the time you put your baby in the water and see if someone is going to come and rescue him or not, it is too late. Faith means looking at the general trajectory that God is doing, seeing what God is up to, and then not seeing, and trusting God to work in the dark. Adrian Rogers says, faith is like film. It's developed in the dark. So again, when was the last time you trusted God for something that you didn't know how it was going to work out? When was the last time? You know, you imagine her, her mind, right? Moses' mother, she walks away. Three months old, trying to roll over and different things. This little box bobbing in the river. And her mind, running through her mind was all the things that could go wrong. But if she had turned back and had been caught trying to rescue her baby, she would have probably gotten them both killed. If you try to deal with the situation by halfway following God and halfway doing things your own way, you say, I'm going to dabble in sin. You're never going to get anywhere. This is the hardest part of faith. And the real difficulty with faith is the absolute impossibility of it. Um, Charles Kettering, in his book, Bits and Pieces, he was the um, head of research at General Motors. And he said whenever he had a really difficult problem, outside the meeting room, he would put a table. And on that table, he put a little sign that said, leave your slide rules here. Why does he want a bunch of engineers to leave their slide rules outside? He said, because whenever he gave a problem, if he didn't have that out there, somebody would be grabbing their slide rule and telling them that it couldn't be done. We are always telling God what can't be done. But what if we trust God? So Moses comes and laid this basket. His sister Miriam is left to watch. She's younger. She's not going to draw as much suspicion. So first we don't see, and then first we see, and then we don't see. Look now with me, if you would, in verse 5. And the daughter of Pharaoh came down to wash herself at the river. So this was not a randomly chosen spot, right? uh, Moses' mother has been watching and says, look, here's a little inlet with no crocodiles, and look who comes down every day. Pharaoh's probably 19-year-old daughter. And so she goes, and she props Moses up in the reeds where Pharaoh's 19-year-old daughter comes out to bathe. 
So faith's not dumb either, right? But I trust God, and I do the best I can within the boundaries that God's given me. Comes down to wash herself, and her maidens walked along by the riverside, and when they saw the ark among the flags, she sent her maid to fetch it. She says, go get that box. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the babe wept. And she had compassion on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. She looks in, she sees this baby, and she says, this is a Hebrew baby. How does she know it's a Hebrew baby? Well, he's circumcised. So she looks at this little baby. She says, this is one of the ones they're supposed to kill. Then said his sister to Pharaoh's daughter, Moses' sister, runs up to the princess. In fact, most historians believe that this woman, uh, Pharaoh's daughter, would grow up to become one of the only female pharaohs herself. Very interesting. Runs up to the princess and says... Shall I go and call thee a nurse of the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for thee? She said, runs up to Pharaoh's daughter and says, Do you want me to go get you a Hebrew nursemaid? I know that you Egyptians are kind of racist and you wouldn't let a Hebrew nurse from you. But would you would you want me to go get a Hebrew nursemaid to take care of this baby for you until he's weaned? It's about three years. They didn't have a Gerber factory to go get baby food until they had some tea. About three years, do you want me to go and get a nursemaid? And would you believe that Moses' sister knew a woman who was nursing? It says in verse 8, And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. And the maid went. <coughs> and Pharaoh's daughter said unto her, Take this child and nurse it for me, and I will give thee thy wages. And the woman took the child and nursed it. And the child grew and she brought him unto Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she said, she called his name Moses. And she said, because I drew him out of the water. Imagine. Three steps living by faith. Three steps in impossible circumstances. You ought to be able to remember it. First, you see what God is doing. You know, you look at the trajectory of what God's doing. You say, you know, I'm going to act. Like, I believe God's going to do what God says he's going to do. Then you step out in faith, and so the second step is you don't see what God is doing. And then, of course, the third step is you see what God is doing again. Pharaoh, the Egyptians, were trying to kill all the Hebrew boys. Remember, they identified women were not threats, so they let the girls live. It had already backfired once when the midwives had rescued, but now what happens? Pharaoh's own daughter. The real enemy. <clears throat> and turns it all around. When you live by faith, God can do things that you could never imagine. If I had told you, well, you know, yeah, the king is saying to kill all the Hebrew baby boys, just go talk to the princess. Then that's not going to work. That's the dumbest idea that I've ever heard. But she says, I'm going to plant my baby, I'm going to close my eyes, and I'm going to trust God. You say, I don't know where the money's going to come from to make my bills if I move out. You know, I don't know if I lie on my taxes, how, if I tell the truth on my taxes, how I'm going to get these things done. I don't know if I turn down this promotion, one another one's going to come up again. I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. It's a good thing you don't know, right? If you knew everything that God was going to do, 
you would be terrified. And if God could only do things that you could think of, he would not be much of a God. Here's the challenge for you today. You see what God's doing in time and space and history. What would you do with the most difficult decision in your life today if you trusted God? What would you do if you had faith? And if you will do what you would do if you had faith, surprise, surprise, now you've got faith. You look at some situation where you are living in compromise. You're living kind of on the edge. You say, you know, yeah, I believe there's a God. I don't really want to give my life over to it. Yeah, I know I should tell the truth. I know that I should uh, do the right thing here. I know I should do the right thing here. But I'm just going to kind of flirt with the edges of it. As long as you're doing that, you cannot please God. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. But if you see what God's doing and you say, you know what? I'm just going to throw myself over. Change your life. So you're not a Christian today. You look, you see, what is God doing? Well, somehow he's the kind of God who raises up a nation with a baby in a basket. Somehow he's the kind of God who sends himself, as his son, to die on the cross. To rise again so that anybody who believes in him and turns from their sin will be saved. What if you trusted him? If you're a Christian, you said, what is God doing in my life? And you said, I'm going to do anything, no matter how scary it sounds, no matter how impossible it sounds, if that's going to be what pleases God. Are you willing to do that? What if as a church we said, you know, sick and tired of being sick and tired, sick and tired of nibbling around the edges of what God has, just going to step out and do whatever it takes to reach people. Say, well, what if we don't have this or that or the other? What if I trust God? We've never done it that way before. Probably a pretty good reason to do that. You've all heard the, the story. How many Baptists does it take to change the light bulb? Change? What do you mean change? My dad installed that light bulb in memory of my grandfather. You're not going to change that light bulb. But what if you said, I trust God. I trust God that he can work with a different, it doesn't matter, a different style of music, a different color carpet, a different whatever. He said, I trust God. What have been your life today? You said, I'm going to do what I would do if I believed God. We're going to stand. The musicians are going to come forward. We're going to have a hymn of invitation. and give you a chance to respond this morning. If you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, I want you to do that. If you've never stepped out and followed him in obedience in some way, I want you to do that. I want you to give your heart to him this morning and say, Lord, I commit myself to him. Page number 396.